you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. We've been looking at Job for quite some time now, and Job is a book that deals with the real basic questions of life. It starts out with a, a uh, bit of a contest between God and Satan as to whether or not there is a man somewhere who will worship God simply because he is God and not because of the blessings that God gives him. And God says that Job is such a man, and we find out that he is. But then Job goes through a prolonged period of suffering where he has lost everything, his family, uh, his fortune, finally his health. And three friends come to him who turn out to be not very good friends, but they repeatedly, in a cycle, several cycles of speeches, accuse Job of having committed some terrible sin. That's why this has come upon him. His three friends are uh, followers of the prosperity gospel. Uh, the gospel, it says, if you uh, are obedient and do good things, God will bless you. If bad things happen to you, it's because you've done something bad. Uh, and then comes a fourth man, Elihu. And he says that Job had not sinned, that his suffering came upon him, but that Job had sinned in his suffering because he had said some things about God that were not true. Job has questioned God's authority and whether or not God was actually running the universe the way it needed to be. Uh, Job had this idea that if he were running things, it would be much better. All of us, at one point in time or another, have come to that conclusion. Why did God do so-and-so? I would not have done it that way, really. But anyway... So God now answers Job. And he begins by saying, uh, Job, who are you? Who is this who, who uh, questions my wisdom, who speaks words without knowledge? And in a series of questions, 77 of them through this discourse, uh, God will again and again question Job, and will reassert his sovereignty. In this chapter, he begins by saying that he is sovereign over Job. He is sovereign over the earth. God said, look, where were you when I laid out the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created it? Who are you to question me? He says that he is sovereign over the sun. Uh, he's sovereign over the sea, first of all, which we said in poetic imagery is a picture of evil. The sea is a picture in the Old Testament of chaos and of evil and of wickedness. Uh, and uh, God said he is sovereign over even the depths of the sea. So he is sovereign over evil. Evil can go so far, but it can go no farther. Just like the waves of the sea can come so far, but not any further. And God says he is sovereign over the sun. How do you know that evil will not prevail? Because the sun comes up every morning. And the light 
is a metaphorical symbol of God. Evil loves the darkness. Men hate the light and love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And then finally, uh, in our message last week, finally, not finally, I'm about done. Don't get too excited here. Uh, God says that he is sovereign over the place of the dead. Not just death, although that is true as well, but he is sovereign over the place of the dead, what the Bible calls Hades. Uh, And he says to Job, have you been there? And of course, Job had not, and neither have we. None of us here have been to the place of the dead. We ended last week by saying that there is one has been to the place of the dead, Jesus Christ. He is the one, he tells John, on the Isle of Patmos, who died and is alive forevermore. And he has the keys of Hades and of death. So in the next passage, Job is taken to two more extremities, two horizons uh, that God talks about. In a poetic cosmology, he says, somewhere over the eastern horizon, there is a dwelling where light lives. And it comes up in the morning to light the earth. And over the western horizon, there is a place where darkness lives. And in this passage, light and darkness are more than physical descriptors. They speak of goodness and evil, of order and disorder, of joy and of gloom. The Lord asked Job if he has been where the light dwells and where darkness lives so that he might conduct each to its proper place. Uh, In other words, again, God says that he is sovereign over the light and over the darkness. If Job could answer that he has been to the place where the light and the darkness dwell, then it would indicate that he is eternal, that he is one who existed when the world was created. And of course, he is not eternal, uh, and he does not know where the light and the darkness live. Darkness is a great mystery to him. So the next five passages all call on Job to look upward to the skies. And he says the skies can teach us a great deal about the wonderful counsel of God in his government of the world. Uh, Four of the five are about water. And water is one of the most familiar pieces of existence in God's creation, and yet, in many ways, remains a puzzle to man. Uh, Man now understands precipitation, of course, a great deal more than he did in Job's day. That is true. But one of the things that God is going to say in this passage to Job is, can you speak to the clouds and bring down rain? Well, every farmer on earth would love to be able to do that. Or can you speak to the clouds and stop the rain? Anybody who's ever been in a bad flood would like to have done that too. But we cannot do that. We are not sovereign over water. We understand it in some ways a lot better, but in many ways it is still a mystery, a puzzle. So in verses 22 through 28, God says that he is sovereign 
over snow, hail, rain, and lightning. In, in poetic cosmology, above the firmament or the canopy of the sky, there are storehouses that contain different kinds of precipitation that human beings experience on earth. These storehouses have windows. Uh, in the Old Testament, they are referred to as the windows of heaven. And they may, at times, be opened by God and their contents poured out upon the earth below. And here, God highlights two of them, water in the forms of snow and of hail. Now, why those two? Because each is associated with war and destruction. Verse 23 talks about the time of trouble, the day of battle and war. You remember in Joshua chapter 10 that God threw down large hailstones from heaven to terrify the Amorites and helped Joshua to win the victory. Hail was one of the plagues of Egypt, whereby God demonstrated that he was indeed God. Hail is a way of speaking uh, in poetic language of the wrath of God. And uh, snow as well is a weapon of war. Psalm 68 verse 14 talks about God bringing the snow on Zalman. Uh, both Napoleon and Hitler discovered that snow could be a weapon of war when they uh, mistakenly invaded Russia and lost more men by the cold and the snow than they did to their enemies. In the context, the light of verse 24 seems to be the lightnings that come down from heaven. The east wind, a stormy wind that comes at the same time. So together we're given a, we're given a picture of destruction unleashed upon the world from above. Uh, and Job is asked if he has been to the places where those come from. Uh, and if he has, then he will understand why they are unleashed at any particular time. Why did this uh, hurricane come at this particular time? We now, you know, you get an app on your phone. You can monitor hurricanes in the Atlantic during the season. And men know a lot about hurricanes. They know they form off the coast of Africa and they come across the Atlantic. And they can cause great destruction. Why? Well, we don't know that. Job did not know that. But God says that he knows. Uh, God then turns to another form of water. Water can fall as snow or as hail to bring death and destruction. But it can also fall as life-giving rain. In the poetry here, the channel for the rain is the path that the rain takes from the heavenly storehouses down to the ground. And our text says that the channel is cleft, indicating that uh, it is a deliberate action by God. doesn't happen by chance. God orders the rain. Associated here also with it is a thunderbolt. So we're picturing a massive rainstorm. But whereas the snow and the hail brought trouble in battle and war, the water brings rain, it says, on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is 
nomad, an uncultivated, barren land, a land that would have no water if God did not send this rain. And water in this form satisfies, saturate the wasteland, causes vegetation to grow. Uh, this is life-giving water, a contrast to the snow and the hail, the kind of precipitation that can be an, an instrument of destruction of war. And the point is, the same element is sent by the same creator with very different consequences, according to his sovereign will. That's the, the, the point that he is making here, is the same element in different forms and in different contexts can have diametrically different results. God wants Job to think about that and to think deeply about what he can learn from water. He uses a number of other examples of water in these verses. Rain, 28, dew, ice, frost, frozen waters over the deep. And about how they operate differently in, in the creation. Uh, and God says that he is the father of these different kinds of precipitation. He has begotten it. He has given birth to it. Uh, the imagery of origins is beautiful and it is intimate. Here it is suggested that there is an intimate relation between the creator and all forms of water. Water that brings life and water that brings death. And all of these different experiences of water speak of a God who is intimately involved in the world. This is not the deist watchmaker who created everything and just walked off and left it. This is a God who is involved in all of the workings of his creation. Uh, we are uh, often thankful for the rain that comes, and yet we must also acknowledge that the same God who sends life-giving rain can also send an ice storm that causes death and destruction. God is sovereign over them. He is the one who orders them according to his purpose and according to his will. And Job cannot do that, and neither can we. And then he says that God is sovereign over the heavens. Now we're talking about the stars and the planets, the heavenly bodies. Four names are given, Pleiades, Orion. Those are well-known and easily identifiable constellations, if you know anything about astronomy. Uh, which I don't. But anyway, uh, what does it mean to bind and loose their chains or their cords? Not sure. Again, 95% of Job is poetry, and sometimes it's hard to figure out what the poetic images exactly mean. Uh, it, it may mean that God controls their progressions across the sky. That it is God who determines how the heavenly bodies move and operate. Uh, in verse 32, other groups of heavenly bodies are mentioned. The Maseroth, which is a transliteration uh, from the Hebrew. 
may be a reference to the planets or to some constellation in general that we don't now know what it is. The bear is probably a constellation, but we're not sure exactly which one it would be either. In chapter 9, Job refers to God as being the one who made the bear, Orion, Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. And he suggests that he leads them forth in their season. That might be what the chains in the cords of verse 31 are a reference to, that the heavenly bodies are under constraint, that uh, God orders their direction. Uh, the, uh, the discipline, well, I don't want to call it a discipline, but there are those today who believe, you know, in astrology, that the stars control your fate. They influence uh, events on earth. Men have believed this for thousands of years. They, they bought that kind of bunk, and Job was around. Now, the Bible does not accept this, uh, but it uses the language of that kind of uh, belief in order to affirm the government of God over all of the earth. Uh, the stars do not control your destiny, but God controls the stars. That's the point. It is a sovereign God in heaven who controls all of these heavenly bodies. Verses 34 through 38, we come back to water. And we're told that God uh, controls the clouds. Uh, the main meaning of this passage, while there's some uh, conundrums about it, is pretty clear. Verse 34, Job is asked if he has authority to call up the clouds so that they send much-needed rain. Uh, in verse 35, he's asked the same thing. Can you command the lightning bolts? It's, it's an interesting kind of amusing picture of lightning bolts appearing before Job as Isaiah did before God and saying, here am I, send me. Uh, and God says to Job in these rhetorical questions, Job, can you do that? Can you command the rain? Can you say, all right, we need a little rain down my way. And we do. But I, I can't command it. I, I can't make it rain. I can't command the lightning bolts. We might understand what causes the lightning and we can study about it and see how awesome a power that it is and how many thousands of bolts of electricity are in a lightning bolt. We don't control it. Man cannot make it lightning on the scale that it happens in our universe, in our world. Uh, but the point is, God does. God controls the rain. And God controls the lightning. No man has the authority to command the life-giving waters of blessing. No human being can command rain. No human being can prevent hail. No human being can prevent snow, and no human being can avoid suffering. No human being can ensure constant blessing. Just can't do that. that. That's the whole point of these things. 
Job is upset because of naturally because of all this suffering that he's been going through. And his theology up until this point has been the same of his three friends. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. If as long as you are good and you go to church and you know, you drop a buck in the offering plate every now and then, and every now and then tell the preacher he's done a good job, then everything will just be wonderful for you. You will have the best of jobs. You'll have the best of families. No, no child will ever rebel. No child will ever go astray. Everything will just be wonderful all of your life. That was Job's theology prior to all of this happening. And what God is doing is showing Job that he is sovereign over all the events of life. He's sovereign over all of this creation. And ultimately, God is sovereign over these events that have come into Job's life. Job will not understand why, but God understands why. One, one striking observation, I think, is that although Job has to answer no, to all of these questions, <laughs> have you been here? Have you been here? No, no, no. Can you do this? No. Can you do? Can you command the rain? No. He answers no to all of them, but it is to Job the questions are asked. There is an implicit dignity in man that God asks Job these questions. He doesn't ask them of any other creature. A second thought is is that God uses rhetorical questions here rather than just making striking statements after all God could have rephrased the whole speech and said Job I know how uh, I know how to command the rain but you don't know but he doesn't do that he asks rhetorical questions now what do rhetorical questions do how do they affect Job and then how do they affect us and the answer is rhetorical questions draw in the listeners to the reasoning behind those questions so that they begin to internalize them and to make those truths their own and then answer them for themselves. But the main response so far is to think far more deeply about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and how that extends to God's sovereignty and control over evil. Most of the time, I think even as believers, we kind of have the idea that there is a resident dualism in the universe. That we got God and Satan, and they're equal. You know, they're just battling it out, you know. I even, I even heard a man one time, he honestly did this. He was talking about the doctrine of election. And he said, well, election works like this. God has a vote, Satan has a vote, and you cast the deciding vote. Uh, well, that's dumber than dirt. Uh, but anyway, do not, do not for a moment entertain the idea that God and Satan are equal. They are not. Satan is under God's control. Remember we saw in the first two chapters of the book of Job, you may do this, you can go no farther. You may do this, you can go no farther. Remember in Luke chapter 22, where Jesus says to Simon, 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 Satan hath begged permission to sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are turned again, you strengthen your brothers. Satan had to beg permission from Jesus to sift Simon Peter. He couldn't do it otherwise. And what's amazing is Jesus gave him the permission. But I've said so many times before, Satan wanted to sift Simon Peter so that there'd be nothing left but chaff. But God, using that for his own purpose, when Satan sifted Simon, there was nothing left but a rock. A rock who stood at Pentecost and preached and 3,000 were saved. Evil is under God's control. Satan is not equal to God. Not in any way. God is sovereign. There is goodness and evil mixed in this creation. We don't know why. And we don't know what purpose that evil may serve. But we know that God causes all things to work for our good and for His glory. I say this because this is where so many people go astray. They look at terrible things that are happening in the world and they do just what Job did. They question the goodness of God. They question the sovereignty of God. If God were truly sovereign, He would not have allowed that to happen. I can't tell you how many times I've read that statement by people who profess to be Christian. God would not allow that to happen. But don't you see the arrogance in that statement? Exactly how do you know what God will do? That's why I never cared much for a little thing, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Number one, you don't know. You just don't know. You're not Jesus. We have the mind of Christ and we can imitate what we see of Christ in the Bible, but in any given situation, we're just not sure. So when suffering comes, when God's sovereignty allows things to come into our lives that are terrible, when we see things in the world that are terrible, what will you do? Will you trust that God is sovereign even over evil and that He is still in His heaven and He will do that which is best? Or will you question it and say, well, I could run the universe better than that. I know better how to do things than God does. Don't fall into that trap. We're going to have a word.